Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Thomas Nagler, managing partner at the eponymous law firm in Vaduz, capital of the Principality of Liechtenstein. The firm specializes in international finance, technology, especially blockchain, telecommunications and the internet, as well as civil and corporate law. As a software developer, as well as an attorney, Thomas Nagler was a natural member of the government working party that drafted the Liechtenstein Trusted Technology Law, otherwise known as the TVTG, or more colloquially as the Blockchain Act. And it's the Blockchain Act, which is the subject of our conversation today. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a big pleasure to be here. Now, Liechtenstein wasn't exactly at the epicenter of the uh, initial coin offering boom back in 2016, 2018, which first, I suppose, alerted the world to the capital raising possibilities of, of blockchain technology. 2017. Um, so we had the first projects actually already starting to uh, getting formed in 2016. Um, but it was not like the, the numbers you saw, for example, in Switzerland. That's, that's true. Um, and what was happening is actually that um, in Liechtenstein, uh, we, we, we saw that something is happening. And um, I think the approach um, to, to learn from what is happening, uh, to, to, to enter into a dialogue into, uh, with these entrepreneurs uh, when they try to, for example, do ICOs out of Liechtenstein, um, that was a good one because uh, that helped Liechtenstein to understand um, what's uh, the nature of this new thing, uh, what are the, the, the possibilities, but what are the challenges as well. Um, and this open dialogue, uh, what we uh, call here in Liechtenstein, you can directly approach a government or you can directly approach a financial market authority uh, and to discuss your ideas and project with them, uh, helped us to understand what is going on. And yes, uh, the TVTG was for sure also an answer of what was happening uh, to this fundraising part of this new development, uh, but not only uh, the fundraising. You saw some other uh, approaches and ideas from other jurisdictions where they focused on this fundraising ICO uh, boom and to regulate that. Um, particularly, uh, Liechtenstein took a very broader approach with the TVTG. So there was one part uh, where, where, where we wanted uh, to, to regulate Yes. Now, almost everyone I've spoken to in, in Liechtenstein emphasizes to me that the, the blockchain law isn't aimed at financial services only, uh, but it's actually aimed at all areas of the economy, what we call the, the, the token economy. Uh, was that um, conscious at the time of the, the drafting of the law that you were looking to capture uh, all asset classes, particularly liquid asset classes, real estate, collectibles, uh, and we talk about these a lot now, but was that obvious at the time you were drawing up this law that, that you wanted to capture those other asset classes, recognizing they could be digitized? I think when uh, when you look at the, the published documentation about uh, how the act was formed, you will find a lot of information about that this was really uh, the idea to, to have an answer to more than the fundraising. So it's really about tokenization of assets. As you said, talk, uh, about, it's about the token economy. And um, yeah, the first time ever when the, uh, the former prime minister, Adrian Hasler, was talking about uh, the Liechtenstein Blockchain Act, uh, as we called it back then, it was in March 2018. 
And, and back then, if I remember correctly, I think he already said that it's more than just uh, the, finance, uh, the finance world. It's more than that. Uh, it's the idea to have a, a fully fledged, a very comprehensive piece of legislation. So, uh, so it was actually uh, quite, quite, uh, quite in the early days um, that Liechtenstein was thinking uh, in, in very broad terms uh, in, in, in respect of this uh, piece of legislation. Right, so it was built into the law from the outset. Uh, tell me, how hard was it to, to frame a, a law like this? It's, it's not as if you were able to draw upon lots of precedents from all around the world on how to do this. So where did you find the, the concepts, if you like, and how hard was it to express them in terms of the law when you sat down to draft this law? How difficult was it to capture what you were trying to, to say in legal concepts, legal terms? I think that the Liechtenstein lawmaker is not. Uh, it's it's actually it's it's uh, there's another level of of uh, or another challenge uh, we have in Liechtenstein as well because our lawmaker is not very famous for uh, inventing new laws or even imposing new laws because what we normally do is Liechtenstein is uh, actually adopting laws uh, from Austria or from Switzerland. Uh, or from the European Union, uh, because we are part of the European Economic Area. Uh, so in most cases, what we actually do is look at other jurisdictions, look what they do, and then just amend it and make it uh, suitable for, for the Liechtenstein specifics. Um, so there are only uh, very few laws which are originated out of Liechtenstein. Um, and uh, as you perfectly said, like if you then start to think about regulation in an area where you don't have any blueprints, you, you, I mean, back then there were some first ideas and first there was like Malta had, had his law and uh, uh, Alta was already public. Um, so yes, for sure, uh, as everybody is doing, you look at what others are doing, uh, but in the end, um, like uh, that was the interesting part. Um, it was so uh, interesting for us uh, that we were the first ones in, in March uh, uh, 2018 when our prime minister announced that Liechtenstein is working on, so, on, on such a piece of legislation that this concept of the token container model, uh, this concept of finding a proper legal framework for the token economy was new to everybody. So we were the first ones uh, doing that, I think. So the Liechtenstein lawmaker was the first one imposing such a law. Um, and just... Like it's even you see that with a lot of approaches, not only Liechtenstein, I think to define a token from a legal perspective, that's really very challenging um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and one reason is that um, you have to understand that it's not the token. There are thousands of forms of how you can actually, uh, from a technological point of view, um, have tokens, like how you, which protocols you're using, how you, how you, uh, like, which, which other technologies you're combining. So it's, it was, it was really necessary to find an as uh, agnostic approach as somehow possible. Uh, but on the other hand, you want to have legal clarity, and it should fulfill the role um, to act as the center of this token container model and to serve as this center of the token container model. So I think Liechtenstein and the Liechtenstein lawmaker did a, a quite impressive job, to be very honest, uh, imposing this uh, legal definition uh, of the token. Well, I'd like to come back to the, to the, to the token container model in, in a second, but just as a matter of interest, as you look back and you see the completed law, it, it, it's published, we can all read it. What proportion of that would you say was genuinely 
novel, genuinely new, but never been set in, in law before? Is it 20% of it or 30% or 50 or 70% of it? That is a very good question. I think because um, the, the legal definition of uh, actually, actually all the definitions were, were pretty were new. Um, and this is quite a proportion of the act. Uh, all of the service providers were new. Uh, the supervisory model was not that new. That was uh, something, if you compare that, for example, to the PSD2, you find some similarities. So the registration model is similar uh, uh, to, to the one in the payment service directive. Um, but um, so I think it's, it's really a big proportion, which was really genuine. It's, uh, it's uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want, don't, um, please don't bring me down to a number, but uh, I think uh, it, was a, it was a huge or is a, a huge proportion. Now you mentioned a minute ago this this term token container model. What what's the, explain that to us? What's the significance of that? The um, so the uh, the law itself is defining the the token from a legal perspective. Um, and uh, when you read the materials about the Liechtenstein Blockchain Act, you find uh, this uh, picture um, of uh, the uh, of of that the token acts as a container um, and. You can think of that when you have like, um, if, if, you, if you think of this new technology, what it is really good for, um, in one sentence, uh, it's, it's, it allows you to transfer values without intermediaries. Um, and that's, uh, that's uh, one of the capabilities of this new technology. So we said, okay, if we have like a token uh, and this token can transfer values, um, it's easy to understand for people that you define the token legally. So you have this, you define it as a container, and then you can put assets in form of rights into that container. And then you have to make uh, clear rules how you can transfer this token. And what you have to uh, also uh, uh, cl clarify is that if you transfer the token representing a right, the right is also transferred. Why is that the case? Because when you think about the token economy and assets which are at the moment not tradable, they should be tradable or they should be like, uh, you, can, you, should use, you should be able to use them in digital economies. Um, the thing is that you need clarity that if you transfer this uh, token, you also transfer the right. And if, if, if you have legal certainty there, then you, will, you are able to build products and services on top of that. So this is in the center. In the center, the token container model is um, that this piece of information on the blockchain system acts as a container, which is able to represent assets, rights to assets. And then you can easily transfer not only the, the, the token, but also the represented right. And that's the unique thing about that. Mm -hmm. Another, another term used in the law is this idea of a, a, a physical validator, which implies that somebody is going to be checking that the tokenized assets exist and or the assets behind them exist and they can be exchanged. Does that, well, explain what, what the physical validator does to us, but perhaps also give us an idea of whether the physical validator assumes liability if something does go missing or turns out to be missing. I think, first of all, it's worth noting that it's quite interesting that um, you have a piece of legislation which actually uh, tells you that it tries to understand this very new technology and this innovative uh, potential of this new technology. And we all know that this technology started to get rid of intermediaries. 
And now we have this act imposing new intermediaries like a physical validator. Uh, this was not um, without any comment of, of the blockchain community, I can assure you. Um, but it was necessary. And why was it necessary? Because um, if you think of this token economy in general and you, 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 you impose this model of representing rights with a token, um, you have to think what is uh, where technology alone is able to provide solutions. And that's the case if you want to just transfer the token. Um, for example, if you have a token representing an IP right, it might not need anyone else. It's just you can do that all of that with technology. Or if you have a digital security of a company, you don't need an intermediary. You don't need someone. But if you have this, um, this uh, the token economy in your mind and you think about representing for example, ownership rights to physical goods, um, you need a bridge between the digital world and the real world. Because if you have a, a real world asset, for example, a very valuable piece of, of art, for example, or a collectible or a jewel or something like that, um, and you let a token represent the ownership to that, uh, to that, to, uh, to that physical object, um, you, you have to find a way how you coordinate what is happening on the, uh, on the digital world and uh, what is happening uh, in the real world. And um, in Liechtenstein, we have a, um, a property law which is similar to, to Switzerland and, and most other uh, European uh, countries. So for example, if you want to actually transfer uh, tokens from, uh, if, if you want to pro uh, transfer property, normally you do that manually. So you really hand over the physical object. So, what, uh, and uh, why is that the case? The, the idea behind that is that um, you, if you, if you buy something uh, and you will get it, uh, you will get the physical object, you are the owner of the physical object in simple terms. Um, but if you do that with a token, you know, and I will like, uh, I will issue a token representing the ownership right of, of a very valuable uh, piece of art, and I will transfer it to you and you will transfer it to somewhere else. And in the end, a very nice person in Australia will buy that token and will say, yeah, I'm the owner of a physical object, which is in Liechtenstein. The problem is, uh, if he wants to enforce this right, he will approach uh, the person uh, who actually really has the, 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 uh, the physical object. So will he come to me and say, Thomas, look, I'm uh, the token holder, so please hand over the physical object. And if I'm a bad person, I might have already sold the, token, uh, the, 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 the physical object, or if I'm not a bad person, but I'm really not good in storing a piece of art, it, it got damaged or somebody stole it from me. And uh, the person in Australia then has a token, but in the end, uh, he is not able to enforce his ownership right. And to avoid that, uh, we said, okay, to build the bridge between the digital world and the real world, uh, we have a new intermediary, which is called physical validator, which in most cases in practice takes that physical object in custody. And the token holder from Australia then approaches not me as uh, the original person tokenizing the, the asset, but is able to, uh, to go to the physical validator and the physical validator has that physical object in custody.
There are other ways of doing that, uh, but that's the, 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 the principal concept of that. Mm -hmm. And it's not for every, uh, like if you do a very small uh, volume transaction. So for example, if you have a, a watch or something like that, you don't need that physical validator in any case, but if you have like high volume uh, um, uh, assets, yes, then you need it. Right, so the, the, the term physical validator is a very good description of what the physical validator does. It, it validates the existence and uh, the fact that the physical asset is in custody. You, you mentioned um, the irony of uh, a law about a technology which is all about disintermediating uh, expensive middlemen and other intermediaries. Uh, but this, and indeed this law is called the trusted technology law. Um, you could have called it something else, but it implies that the technology is trustworthy and is trusted. Uh, so it's it's a law which is very much tied up with with the nature of of, of classic blockchain technologies. How do you how on earth do you you do you draft a law which uh, is so closely tied to the fact that blockchain gets rid of the need for trusted intermediaries? How do you draft a law that is neutral about what technology is being is being used? It's because you don't have to use blockchain, do you, to, to, to take advantage of this law, or do you? No, I think, uh, and that's another very innovative uh, thing about the act. Um, it's uh, because this technology is evolving very fast, as we all know. So if you talk about blockchain today, maybe you will talk, or you, you talked about blockchain in the past, you talk about distributed ledger technologies today, and tomorrow we'll talk about something else. Um, in the end, uh, then you will have, a, um, uh, there was like uh, one of the reasons I think why this was done in that way is uh, that you will have an act which is uh, serving a purpose for, for longer. And um, I think, the, 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 the interesting part here is um, that's really why I think the lawmaker in Liechtenstein understood what is so innovative about these new technologies, because um, it was not just describing what was happening. It was uh, the lawmaker understood uh, what was going on and said, okay, there is, because what is really behind all of that? As I said, it's, it allows you to transfer values with the use just of internet technologies without intermediaries. So the interesting part here is really that uh, you are able to have transactions without intermediaries. So, and um, for, as, as an IT person, you would rather call it trustless technologies because you don't need to trust the technology. You can actually check it yourself. Um, but uh, this was actually, I, I think it's, it's a better term to understand if you say, okay, there are technologies which you can trust uh, because how they, the, the way how they are set up and the way how they function allows you to, to uh, not to use an intermediary, you use the technology and you will have trustworthy transactions. Uh, so I think that's, that's the, the, the interesting part here. And this is, I think, really a very, uh, like one, one of the really innovative things here, because if you use, for example, today blockchain, or to, as I said, tomorrow, another technology, it doesn't matter to the act, as long as it fulfills the criteria and requirements of the law, you can use this technology. So it's really very future proof. Now, you used the phrase a minute ago, transactions without intermediaries. 
you said you prefer to this to be called trustless technology rather than trusted technology. Now, whether we call it trusted or trustless, it does. But the way the law is drafted does imply that, uh, that, that, that trust is kind of built into the technology. It's not provided by intermediaries such as, such as banks. Now, was that, when, when you were drafting the law, did that threat of, of, of being disintermediated, that, did that concern existing intermediaries in Liechtenstein, like the private banks? Were they concerned they were going to be knocked out of the transactional, the, the, these exchanges of value we've, we've talked about? I can only tell you what my experience is, as, uh, and I followed that very closely, I can assure you. Mm-hmm. And uh, like the, uh, the, the discussions I had uh, as, as, a, as a lawyer or me in person in Liechtenstein with all of these intermediaries, they were quite interested uh, in, uh, in this new technology. And, but I, I'm, I'm uh, pretty sure that there were a lot of concerns which were not addressed to me. Uh, but um, uh, I think uh, it was, uh, we, if you look at all of the reports, uh, the discussions in parliament, yes, there were a lot of questions about specifically for, there was at least one question about why it is called trustless technologies. And um, so this was discussed and this was a topic for sure. Um, and, and I always told uh, every intermediary and still do, um, I think, like now the point of no return, we reached already that point of no return. So it's blockchain is not something, uh, it, it's here to stay. It will not stop tomorrow, hopefully. I mean, if we have a technical error, we'll see. But and uh, in, in like, that's actually my, uh, I, I think um, it, it's good if they start to understand it, if they start to, to see the potential behind it. And you, re- you might remember the claim or you might have heard of the claim like be your own bank if you have a hardware wallet and stuff like that. I think like uh, this was really the fear in the beginning that you don't need intermediaries anymore at all. Uh, the reality is that uh, you have a very successful intermediaries in Liechtenstein banks which, are, uh, which, which adopted their business model quite, quite fast and now offering new services and products uh, based on, on these new trusted technologies, based on blockchain technologies. So they actually increased the portfolio. They added more services. They now have crypto custody and a lot of other things, which they were not doing some years ago. Um, and so I think, yes, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there were a lot of concerns. Um, and I think uh, we were quite, I, I really, I really, but when I saw the second discussion in parliament uh, and it was, uh, they were uh, like, it was unanimously uh, adopted. So there was no vote against it. I think this was really a strong signal. And um, what, what I all, uh, always tell everybody, it's, it's a new thing, just like, don't, uh, don't decide before you understood it, you know, uh, because if you, if, you, if you act like that, and that's pretty human, you know, like if you have a new thing, oh, it has to be bad. Uh, what's the, uh, what's the, the, the fastest way of getting rid of it? Just stop it, block it, whatever. But I think what, uh, and that, that was really necessary. So we, we, we uh, the Liechtenstein was quite successful in having like uh, um, the universities uh, starting to, 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 uh, to develop courses. Um, you had uh, like a lot of information about that. And uh, this allowed everybody to just to, to start with, with using that technology and getting comfort uh, with using that technology. And um, 
yeah, in the end, uh, we, we, we had it in force or still have it in force. And uh, I, I, I really think that uh, it has a lot of potential for intermediaries. And the, the next years, uh, you will see intermediaries adopting this technology, using this technology to provide new products and services in Europe. Because as we all know, the market in crypto assets regulation was proposed or the, the draft was published uh, last year in September. And even like the path for Europe uh, seems to be uh, going that direction as well. So I think, uh, and that's another fun thing. If you talk with like, there are not a lot of projects publicly available, but a lot of uh, intermediaries, they have proof of concepts. They have a lot of, they did a lot of research. They did a lot of uh, things behind closed doors. Uh, but now you see more and more of them um, to, to, uh, to start to like actually really provide products and services based on that. Well, I'll come back to the European uh, uh, crypto assets regulation in, in a minute, because it is interesting from, from, from a Liechtenstein point of view, as well as a, a global market point of view. But can I just ask you one other thing? Um, before we get onto that, and that, that's this, if, if, a, if a, um, a law is describing a trustless or trusted technology, whichever term we want to use, what is the impact of that on, on the regulator? After all, what regulators do is regulate intermediaries. And if there are no intermediaries, does that give, uh, did it give the Financial Market Authority, the regulator in Liechtenstein, a, um, a problem in making the law effective in regulatory terms? Did it pose special challenges for the, for the FMA? You have to ask them <laughs> that question, <laughs> but I, I will try to, to share my experience. I think um, the Financial Market Authority pretty soon issued guidelines based on the, uh, on the law. Um, they, they even have templates now. And I think if you look at um, the act itself, there are several parts of the act. Uh, so you have like these uh, definitions in the beginning, and then you have uh, a civil law part which I uh, already described, which allows you to have this enforceable transaction. So you, were, you will end up with having a transaction uh, which, which, which allows you to uh, really enforce it from a civil law perspective. And then you have a, a, a part talking about the supervisory and the registration regime. And as I said, um, there are, in, uh, there are uh, several new service providers uh, which have to get registered based on this uh, TVTG. So for example, if you want to provide exchange services, uh, you have to get registered that is a, as, a, as an exchange service provider with the FMA. So yes, it is true. There is a part where technology, trustless technologies doing the job. Uh, and I think there the really challenging part is to identify which technology is trustworthy and which is not. So for example, and I think here the bandwidth is from, you have a, a, a very secure, let's say Ethereum blockchain, which is true for that specific moment. Nobody knows what's happened tomorrow. And on the other end, I think you have like a private website operated by two or three persons and they just provide you with a, a central database and issuing token on their central database. Now, what is a trustless technology? Uh, for Ethereum, the, the answer is pretty simple. It, it is yes, uh, but for the private yet, uh, website is no. But like in between, you have a lot of colors and a lot of uh, shade, like uh, a lot of gray area. And I think that's, that's a very challenging part. 
what is a trusted technology. And on the other hand, that was pretty simple because um, the, the, the way how the act is, uh, um, is dealing with service providers, it's quite similar to PSD2, as I already said, we have a registration procedure. So you write an application, provide all of the necessary documentation to the financial market authority. And within three months, you will get a decision whether you're registered or not. And then you are on the public website of the financial market authority. So that was actually uh, something where they were, uh, that, which is pretty easy and pretty, I mean, pretty easy, but in general, like this is something they do for years. That's not something really new. I think the first part is the new part. And um, that's, that's a challenging one. In practice, it's not a big problem because uh, most of the, uh, like the entrepreneurs which are providing products and services, they really consider very wisely which technology they use so far. So in the end, the regulator ended up regulating the people engaged in the business rather as you'd expect. That's how they solved the business, um, the, the problem they faced. Now you, you you mentioned definitions and said it was both difficult and easy to to define what was a trusted technology. Does the law also define the the different variations in terms of the asset class? You know, there is a difference between a, a cryptocurrency and a security token, and between a utility token and a um, a stable coin, and between a, a stable coin and a, a payment token, for example. Is the law very explicit in terms of defining what those different instruments are? Um, but when, when you analyze uh, the, the documentation, which you will find publicly available to the, to the Act, yes, there were some classes defined, uh, but in the final version, I think for good reason, you will not find any classification. Um, and why is this, in my opinion, for good reason? Because um, the way how the token container model works and the way how the token is defined legally, and I will not bore you with the legal definition, but in general, it's the token is a piece of information on a trusted technology system, on a blockchain, which can represent rights like membership and is assigned to one or more TT identifiers. So in general, I tell you like this is token is a piece of information which can represent rights and you have some relationship to, to a human being or to, 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 to a person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, that, that, that if, if, you, if you look at that, um, how this token uh, then was defined, um, now I missed your question, sorry. No, no, you asked the question. We were, we were talking about um, how tightly the, the law defined the different types of yeah, sorry. Yes, token, sorry, yeah. sorry. Back to track. Classification. Sorry. Thank you very yeah. much, Dominic. So yes, um, and I think because it is defined in a way uh, which can serve, uh, or actually is a, is a, is a catch-all definition already, um, uh, th that's one thing. So it can serve for, for all of the uh, tokens you will find out there on the one hand. And on the other hand, what uh, for, uh, the, the law is, re is really precise. Uh, for example, if you have a token and uh, you, will, you will have a token representing the rights of a financial instrument, this will not change the legal nature of the financial instrument. So that's another reason why this, uh, this approach is so flexible um, because it, doesn't, uh, it has no impact 
uh, on the, the, the asset which is actually represented. So if it is a financial instrument, securities laws are applicable. If it is, uh, like, let's say, an IP right, you will have all of the IP laws applicable. And therefore, it's not limited to a certain asset class, which is regulated, and all of the others, you, they will have the lack of legal certainty. It's uh, the token uh, serves as a container for every right which can be represented. Uh, it doesn't matter which, uh, which classification you will find somewhere else. Doesn't mean that, for example, our financial market authority uses such a classification approach, which a lot of regulators globally do. So they uh, use the same terms as security, uh, security tokens, utility, and payment or, or uh, currency. But um, this will not, and uh, why I think this is, this is a better approach, first of all, because of the flexibility, and secondly, you will not, um, this actually, uh, in, based on my experience, people are trying to tell you, you know, like, okay, um, I, I heard that there is some problem with offering securities, so that's why I will call it utility token, and uh, tell me what I have to do to make it a utility token. And in the end, this is not what, 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 uh, what actually helps you solve the problem. You have to uh, think about uh, what products and services you're trying to offer. And then you think about which regulation might be applicable. And if securities laws is something uh, which might be applicable, it still is whatever you call it. So the name doesn't change anything. Um, and it's very dangerous uh, to classify tokens, I think, if you want to end up uh, with having no troubles with regulators, because most of the tokens we see so far are hybrid tokens. They have some payment functions, a little bit of a utility, and some of them might even be considered as securities. Some of them are e-money. So, and so some of them combine all of these functions in one token. So that's why I think it's a, um, it's a very uh, good approach with not using classifications. Yeah. So you, you realized you had to arrive at a, a definition which was sufficiently abstract to encompass all possibilities and that's what gives the, the law its degree of, of flexibility. Um, now, what makes a market in the end, of course, is, is issuers. You need people to issue these tokens, whatever form they take, and you need people to, to invest in them. How tightly does the, does the law define the obligations of the issuers and, and, and the rights of investors, as opposed to um, the rights inherent in the tokens themselves? I think the act itself um, uh, is pretty clear when it comes uh, to the uh, if you if you have a, a public offering uh, of token um, what you have to do is you have to provide a white paper you have to get registered first because this is uh, uh, the token uh, um, emission party somebody who is regulated so he has to get registered first um, then you have to provide a white paper this has to be uh, publicly available still um, uh, like um, that the investor knows what he is actually, uh, the, the idea of the white paper is, as we all know, uh, the idea is to make an informed decision so that he knows what claims he has. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty clear. Uh, and I think this, uh, the, the, the Liechtenstein Blockchain Act or TVTG learned from the experiences globally uh, with all of these ICOs and, and, and fundraising uh, now, you, you use the term, you know, these rights need to be enforceable, of course. Uh, where are they enforceable? In the, in the courts in, in Liechtenstein or elsewhere? This depends. And that's um, one thing which we have to be very careful with, that this act, the TVTG, is only applicable in Liechtenstein. It's a national law. 
um, this national law allows you, so you, in Liechtenstein, if you do something with a token and it falls under the definition and the, the TVTG is applicable, yes, uh, all of the civil law uh, rules are applicable as well. Uh, but what the act allows you is, for example, if two parties uh, enter into an agreement, um, they uh, are able uh, to uh, make the Liechtenstein TVTG as the applicable law if their jurisdictions allow that. So that's like in very, like in general terms. Um, then we have to be very careful with which rights are represented. So for example, I briefly touched uh, the point on uh, that if you tokenize, uh, for example, ownership rights to physical objects, you have property law, uh, which is applicable. And um, as we all know, normally, or at least uh, here, um, property law is something which is really only applicable when the object is in your jurisdiction. So if you move the object outside of a jurisdiction, it might not be uh, applicable anymore. Um, so therefore, and still that's the same lawyer's work we, we did for, for, for ages. Now you have to find the competent court first. Um, in, in a lot of cases, Liechtenstein will be the competent courts. Uh, but in, um, in cross-border, uh, it's, it's the same questions you have. It doesn't change only because if you have something which is tokenized, um, it's, it's the same rules are applicable depending on the assets you, you, you are representing. Now, one of the, the obstacles which consistently puts institutional investors off investing in in security tokens in particular is that they are bearer assets you know they read all these stories about uh, cryptocurrency exchanges being hacked and you know if your if your cryptocurrency goes missing your bitcoin or whatever that's it you you've lost it and you know there's a lower risk in in security tokens and they can be can be at least be replaced but um in the end these tokens are bearer instruments and so whoever holds the keys um holds the asset um how did the how did the law accommodate that custody risk? Um, actually, it defines that if you lose um, the, the custody, uh, if you lose your private key, what you can do is, uh, same as with uh, Bira shares, uh, you have the same co-procedure, uh, and after six months, you can declare uh, your, uh, your token uh, as invalid and issue a new one. As we all know, you have to think about that before you issue the token. From, mm -hmm. a, from a technological point of view, it is possible, uh, but you have to think about that before you issue uh, your token. And specifically with the digital securities, you will find these uh, possibilities of how to burn tokens or force transfer tokens. That's possible, but you have to think uh, about that before you do it. And the, and the law covers a specific procedure, how to actually, um, um, yeah, make the token invalid. I, I think, I, I don't remember the English term now for, for, for a sec. Uh, it's Kraftloserklärungsverfahren would be in German. Yeah. Right, okay. We'll look that up um, afterwards. But does the law also define um, who shall fulfill the role of the custodian or the depository with tokens? There are actually two uh, uh, roles. One is um, uh, someone who stores the private keys that's uh, the key depository. And then you have a token depository. The difference between these two service providers is this, that the first one really stores a copy of your private key. 
Um, and um, in, in most cases, um, um, you will like, it's just a, a backup actually. Um, and uh, the other role I was talking about is the, the key depository, uh, the, the, the token depository. And um, this is actually in most cases, when you talk about uh, depository services, this is the service, how they are organized. You will actually, if you have a token on your private wallet and you want to use a, uh, such a custodian service, what you do is you transfer uh, your uh, token to their address and they take it in custody. And then you um, actually tell them what to do with the token. And there's a third role we, uh, we have in Liechtenstein. Uh, and the difference there, it's actually the same uh, role as the token depository. Um, but uh, the, the, the interesting part here it's, uh, uh, is that, um, I don't know if you know that, but Liechtenstein has a, a, like a, special, a specific set of intermediaries which are called uh, trustees or fiduciaries. And uh, they can actually, if you wire uh, or if you transfer your token to such a service provider, the difference is that the, um, the token depository holds the token um, in your name on your behalf. And the other one uh, actually holds it in his own name on your behalf. So you're the, you, you're, uh, the, the beneficial owner, but if, if, uh, if you want to do transactions, you will find the name of the intermediary. For sure, all of these roles, that's very, uh, 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 I have, I have to, to, to point that out. That's a really interesting, <laughs> that's a very important point. These service providers, uh, they are all uh, subject to our due diligence act. So it's, uh, they, they all have to fulfill the compliance rules. They all have to know their customers. They have a risk-based approach. They have to, to check uh, the, every transaction. So it's not something that you say, okay, now we have like, this new technology, like let's put everything on the blockchain and avoid all of the sanctions, uh, um, like AML rules. No, that's not the case. These service providers are subject to due diligence. Mm -hmm. And do these three functions that the key depository, the token depository, and the fiduciary role, do they have to be separate or can they be fulfilled by a single organization, different divisions of it? It, it, it is possible that the, uh, everything is done by one organization if they have a license to act as a fiduciary. Because uh, the, the other two roles, you don't have to be licensed as a fiduciary, but with the third role, you have to be licensed as a fiduciary and the key depository and the token depository, you don't need any other spe specific license, just get registered with, with the Financial Market Authority. Now, talking of depositories, uh, under European law, under the, under the, under the CSDR, I think it is, uh, you, you have to appoint a, a central security depository for, for security tokens. Uh, and the exchanges which are emerging in Europe um, are all subject to that to that law and finding it something of a of a burden, something they consider in some cases to be unnecessary. Um, does does the does the Liechtenstein law, because of those three layers, um, enable um, issuers and investors to get round that European law requirement? You are part of the European Economic Area, so I assume you're subject to this. But can you get round it under the uh, under the blockchain law? No, because um, uh, the CSDR is all, also applicable in Liechtenstein, um, and therefore you have to fulfill uh, with the CSDR requirements. That's a very interesting area of my research as well. I did publish an article about the secondary market for security tokens last year, and uh, one of my proposals was to get rid of the CSDR requirements for security tokens, uh, because if you, if you do that properly, it, it makes no sense. As you said, it's a burden. 
for the intermediaries. And uh, if you, we already briefly touched Mika, with Mika also in September uh, last year, there was a deal, there was a proposal of a DLT uh, MTF uh, pilot regime. Um, and there you have an exemption from CSDR which is very, very interesting. And I think uh, makes, makes a lot of sense to, to, because if you think about that for, for people who don't know what, what the duties are, you have to, as you said, you have to book centrally uh, your security and it, it, with, a, with a security token, that's the whole idea that you don't need an intermediary for custody anymore. Uh, and so th therefore, like, I, I, I don't know um, yet, I think uh, I checked it last, uh, some month ago, the last time, but I don't think that there is a CSDR in Europe willing to, to do both, uh, to act as a CSDR and book uh, the, the, the security centrally and then like actually mirror that on, on a blockchain system, because that, that would be needed. Yeah. Now, now we bumped into this MECA, this uh, market and crypto assets regulation being prepared by the European Union a couple of times in this in this conversation. Now, as I said, you are a member of the of the EEA. Does that mean that the the MICA, when it eventually becomes law in I think twenty twenty four is the is a proposed date, will that replace the the TVTG or not? will not replace it directly because uh, as we are a member of DEA, we have to adopt it. So there is a process uh, between uh, the, the enforcement in, uh, on a European Union level and, and DEA level. Uh, but uh, yes, sooner or later, yes, uh, we have to adopt uh, um, Mika as well. But I think this is really a very, very big opportunity for Liechtenstein. And why is that the case? If you look at some of the main concepts of how Mika is drafted and how Mika is uh, regulating intermediaries and how Mika is defining, for example, tokens, yes, they have a classification approach, but if you look at the intermediaries, some of them are pretty similar to the ones uh, we have in, in, in place in Liechtenstein. And uh, if you look at how, which, what, what is the level of regulation? What are the requirements? What do ha they have to fulfill? It is also pretty similar. Um, so I think um, and that's what I uh, uh, told our, our government uh, quite some time now. I think this might be a chance for Liechtenstein to early, like to adopt, uh, if it is in the final term, if it is the, the final version of the Mika is available, adopt uh, the draft. Uh, reflected in our TVTG, like uh, check the service providers again, and then uh, amend our TVTG where, where necessary, because then our, inter our, our intermediaries are already ready for Mika before everybody else could be. And there is, I think, I don't know, it's 112 or 13 or something in, in, in the draft. Um, there is uh, one provision which allows you to, uh, if you have, or if you are already licensed or registered um, in in your in your jurisdiction, and there's a specific law in place, yeah, you can ease the procedure to to get licensed based on Mika. So this, and um, I, I really hope that this is the case, that the intermediaries we have in Liechtenstein, which are registered based on the TVTG, get an easy access to the to the then European Union Mika compatible licenses. 
So I think, yes, for sure, it will, um, uh, that there will be amendments in, uh, at, at the TVTG, for sure. Uh, so we have to amend it. Uh, but in general, specifically, the civil law part will still exist. Some of the intermediaries we have to amend. Um, and uh, the definitions uh, will, will, will stay as well, I think. Well, I mean, as you rightly say, this is a fantastic opportunity for, for Lichtenstein. You've got this, this beautiful pioneering law in place and you've got this if you like this three-year window between 2021 and 2024 to steal a march on on other european jurisdictions um what is happening in Liechtenstein to to take advantage of that fantastic opportunity right now i mean is your firm working with with lots of different issuers who are looking to do it and um drumming up in investors and is there a lot going on in Liechtenstein to to take advantage of this window of opportunity Yes, we have a lot of requests uh, to get registered based on the DVTG and uh, quite a, uh, an interesting big proportion of these requests, they already think about Mika as well. I mean, we tell that every of our clients that there will be something coming because we don't know the outcome in the end. You know, we don't know what will be the final version of it. And we don't know if our government is, is, is going the way of early adopting it or not. We don't know that yet. Uh, but that's, that's a big opportunity, I think. And uh, we try to prepare them. And um, uh, that there is a, that's that I can really confirm there's a huge interest in, in that opportunity. Okay, can I ask you one specific question about that, which, you know, to us as outsiders, we find a bit um, puzzling. Do you not think it would help if, uh, if Liechtenstein set up some kind of exchange or trading platform for tokens to be, to be listed and exchanged? I know Liechtenstein doesn't have an exchange and you have this relationship with, with the exchange in Switzerland, but it is relatively easy to set up a, a digital exchange in terms of technology, at least, and it would give Liechtenstein these priceless uh, skills in structuring, issuing, listing, trading um, security tokens. But if you wait until 2024, uh, all these entities you've just talked about, which are coming to Liechtenstein now and wanting to set up businesses, will end up listing in, I don't know, Germany or Switzerland instead of here. And so you'll lose that opportunity. You'll lose those skills of structuring and listing and trading forever. So to so an outsider, it seems very odd to us that um, Liechtenstein isn't actually setting up a digital exchange to take advantage of, of, of the blockchain law? I think you have to differentiate be, uh, because there are, there are several ways of how to organize the secondary market. And one is an exchange which uh, uses these technologies and uh, as I think you referred to that as a digital exchange. So it's licensed as an exchange, uh, but using these technologies uh, to have digital securities. So for example, yeah. security tokens. Yeah. Um, but there are other ways of organizing this, uh, the secondary markets like an MTF, a multilateral trading facility, an OTF. Uh, so, and um, interestingly enough, the first, as far as I know, the first ever uh, MTF, which is um, uh, using blockchain technology for, for, uh, for the services, uh, was registered, was licensed with a conditional license, I have to be precise, as far as I have uh, the information from media, in March 2020 in the European economic area. So that's another way of how you can organize the secondary market. But, and I will, it's, it's even uh, that, like to, to do that in, a, in, a, in the way as you described this as an exchange, as we all know, there is no exchange in Liechtenstein. And I can give you a little bit of, of background there as well. If you look at our banking act, because how we adopted MIFID, it's most in, it, it's in our banking act. Now you will not find sufficient uh, provisions 
for operating an exchange. So you even don't, we have to amend the law first, the local law first, to make it really possible to operate as, a, as an exchange in Liechtenstein. So, so the, bank, yeah, the Banking Act would have to be amended to set up an exchange. Yes, we have to amend our laws first. I mean, yes, in theory, it would be possible, you're, but you're lacking some of, uh, some of the regulation here. Right. So that answers one of the questions that occurred to me as I was listening to you talk about, uh, about the MTF and the exchange, which is that, of course, one of the, the problems which has arisen in the cryptocurrency markets in particular is that the exchanges were doing everything. They were providing the, um, the, the issuance, the, 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 um, the trading and the custody. Uh, you know, it's a, it was a structure riddled with, with conflicts of interest, which uh, in a way facilitated some of the, um, the, the, the frauds and defalcations and so on, the losses of assets which, which took place. Was, were those unfortunate precedents par in your minds as you were, as you were drafting this law? That you needed something which would manage those conflicts of interest. I think you've just answered that by saying that actually you need this is about the banking law rather than about the, the blockchain law. Am I right to think that, or do you think there is an opportunity here for Liechtenstein to describe the perfect tokenized exchange law? I think because uh, this is actually not part of um, uh, of the TVTG because this is public law. It's it's. Um, it's a different area of law where you have uh, all of these uh, areas of the financial uh, of the harmonized financial market. Uh, these laws are are in in a, in, uh, in a very big proportion are harmonized. So we have like uh, we have to adopt the European Union acts like with MiFID, and there's very 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 little room for maneuver here. So therefore, um, the TVTG is not covering these areas. So how to operate? Uh, an exchange for 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 uh, securities is not covered by TVTG, uh, but what is covered is you have a utility and you want to uh, operate an exchange for for uh, for utilities. Yes, this is covered, and there you have like some specific uh, uh, rules about how to segregate assets, uh, clients' assets from your own, and, and stuff like that. Um, but um, I think what is really interesting here again, and I want. To point uh, your your uh, your attention to to this DLT uh, MTF pilot regime of the European Commission again, because what they did, and you already thought, uh, talked about the three uh, stages uh, of, of 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 a classical um, trade. So you have the trading as the first stage, and then you have the the clearing, and then you have the settlement. And the interesting part here is that um, the the proposal is that you can operate everything out of one MTF. So you have the trading venue, you have the matching engine and clearing and settlement can be done with the use of blockchain technology. So you don't need separated intermediaries there. And I think if you ask me what is a clever approach, I think this is a clever approach. Trying to learn how this technology works, where it is possible to 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 serve uh, the uh, or to fulfill the requirements, because we all know that like the secondary market is real. That's that's at the core of our financial system. We have to be very careful uh, with with amending rules there, because we have all of this bad cases in, 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 in the past. And I'm not talking about the blockchain space where you have cryptocurrency exchanges which lose their key, which getting hacked. We have it in the traditional world as well. And for good reason, we have, a, this is a highly, a highly densely regulated area for good reason. 
And if you want to ease that up a little bit, because you say, okay, we have like this uh, rules for trading, we have the rules for clearing, we have the rules for, for, for settlement, we have the rules for, like, uh, for the central security depository, the CSDR you were referring to, we have that for good reason. And if you want to ease that, we have to be very, very careful. And I think the approach the European Commission try, uh, proposed to take is a very interesting and clever one uh, to, to, to propose a pilot regime to learn for some years if it is possible, what are the challenges, what is working, what is not working, and then to, uh, to, to find uh, a solution for that. And I think trading will be anyway, like midterms for sure, and short terms anyway, uh, will be done centrally because for technical reason and for transaction cost reason and stuff like that. But this matching engine is, is something which actually for now, uh, for, for sure, is done centrally. So you need a, uh, an intermediate there. Uh, but with clearing and settlement, that is something which can be easily done with, with technology only. You don't need intermediaries doing that. And I think that's the perfect combination. And that's actually the, the result of my thesis I, I, I published last year. And I was quite happy when I, when I read the, the draft uh, of, of Mika and the pilot regime. Uh, that they proposed that actually. Uh -huh. Right, so you're, you're having a, a continental influence now. <laughs> one thing that the that, that the the laws in the traditional markets, both banking and securities, do prescribe, of course, is is running these know your client anti money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism, sanctions, screening, checks. Um, does the blockchain law cover that area as well? You touched on this earlier, but does it have provisions to ensure that issuers and investors get checked for those risks? And pretty actually the same standard as banks have or uh, uh, trustees and fiduciaries. So they, it's, uh, it's the same law is applicable in the same way. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think it, that that is for very, very good reason uh, because nobody wants to, to, to have like uh, financing of terrorism. Nobody wants to have money laundering. And, uh, and it's actually one of the really bad things uh, for this technology, because it's quite a lot of times directly uh, named in, in in the area of money laundering and and, and f financing of terrorism, or with uh, like uh, Silk Road and stuff, where you have like criminals using this technology or ransomware, where they use Bitcoin. The headline is always that Bitcoin was used for ransomware. It's not about the ransomware attack, which is an awful thing, but the fact that they that they tried to 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 use Bitcoin. Um, that's the headline. Which, yeah. is, which is not fair, I think. But um, to answer your question, yes, all of the service providers, they, are, they, are, they have to, to follow the same rules as banks and, and, and service providers in Liechtenstein. There's one last question for you, Thomas. I always enjoy asking lawyers, are, are smart contracts law? <laughs> are they contracts even? <laughs> I did a presentation, I think it was 2018, in front of 100 young lawyers mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in Spain. Um, and only the headline of smart contracts uh, led to an argument between me and the audience for 10 minutes about only the term smart contracts. They are neither smart nor they are contracts, and I should not call them contracts. And I said, like, this is the term used in the industry. Get used to it. You will hear it a lot of times. My personal opinion, um, in Liechtenstein, if you, uh, if, uh, if you want to enter into a, a binding agreement, you have like to have this concurrent uh, um, um, decisions or like this uh, concurrent uh, um, 
I think, yes, you, you, will, you will tell it like that. So you will have to uh, agree on the terms. And if, if you do that willingly, it's, an, it, it, it's a binding ag uh, agreement. So the problem with smart contracts is that no, like most of us don't really understand uh, uh, what is happening with smart contracts. But in Liechtenstein, even if you assign a Chinese agreement and you don't speak any Mandarin, for example, and you sign it, um, this might be legally binding if you agree on the terms. So if you know what you're signing, you don't have to, to understand what is really happening. And I think that's the same with smart contracts. If you enter into a smart contract, and uh, you, will sign, uh, you will sign with the use of your private key a, a specific transaction to enter into that uh, smart contract, I think um, if you understand the basic terms, what is happening, it is a binding agreement. Um, if this is something uh, which is useful, that's another and, and, and uh, where we have problems and how to solve these problems. Because the interesting part about smart contracts, I think, is uh, that they are auto-executing uh, rules. Um, so in most cases, you don't need uh, a courts uh, or others uh, if something goes wrong. But as we all know, um, it's not the case. Smart contracts have uh, technical issues. They have like uh, security holes. Uh, they get hacked. Um, so a lot of bad things happen here as well. And therefore, you have to have, uh, uh, like for, from a legal point of view, you have to find solutions how to, to deal with these problems. And I think it's not like, yes, you can start with asking the question if they are actually binding agreements, um, but if in reality, two parties agree on, on using a smart contract, they agree on, on specific terms. Uh, the problem really is that technologically, if everything is then auto-executable, the problem is that you cannot do, like it's just happening anyway, if you want to or not. And, um, then you have like this, you have, uh, this is a very interesting topic. I really love that topic. And I, I can talk for hours about that. Like you have like all of these things which happen with the DAO hack. You have like, uh, you have the, like the, the, um, the, 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 parity, uh, multi-sig hack, uh, where you have a lot of questions of how to deal with all of these issues. So it's, it's really a very interesting area. Um, so I, 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 I think you asked for a short answer, uh, didn't you? But if, if I would say, yes, I think in Liechtenstein, they can be uh, legally binding agreements. Just, just to be clear, one of the things which, 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 which smart contracts do auto-execute is, is going to be corporate actions, entitlements to investors on, on security tokens, for example. And the, the blockchain law does accommodate the auto-execution of dividend payments or interest payments by security token issuers through smart contracts, does it? I mean, I've heard everything you've said about uh, the, the code vulnerabilities and the uh, the possibility that it can be manipulated, particularly in, in distressed markets. But yes, the law but says you can use smart contracts to pay your dividends if you want. Yes, because you have this legitimization function. So you as a shareholder of a company, of a, uh, mm -hmm. having uh, the, 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 uh, the power of disposal over, over a digital security token, what you can do is you can legitimize yourself against the issuer and he will then uh, pay uh, upon that, pay the dividends. So yes, it provides exactly the legal, the civil law framework for having this uh, this uh, automation of paying of dividends, for example, that's covered. Now I must let you go, but you're becoming a, a very influential force in in the way that security token markets uh, are likely to develop in in Europe. Are you are you very positive about how quickly this market's going to take off? You know, we're used to 
digital markets growing exponentially. But as you look forward five, seven, 10 years, do you think we're on the cusp of something really exciting in this area or not? Is it going to be slow or fast? We're on the path of something really incredibly exciting. And this will have, uh, it's not possible to underestimate uh, the, uh, the change we will see in how secondary markets are organized. I'm 100% sure about that. I'm very pessimistic when it comes to timing because it will take, I mean, I think this, we can be ready since years, you know, like because the, the technology is there, but um, it will need time. It's, uh, it's, it's a, and as I said, it's, we have to be very careful amending rules there and using this technology uh, in, in the core of the financial market. And uh, therefore, for good reason, it will take more time than I ever would, would, would think of. Uh, but I'm 100% sure that this, this will have a, a very big, big impact on the secondary market. That's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, um, Thomas Negley, thanks very much for, for joining us and taking the time to talk us through uh, the blockchain law. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dominique, for having me and for, for your really interesting questions. I really love the conversation and um, hope to, to see and hear soon more of you. Thank you.